Welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is episode number 100, hooray, released on January 9th, 2019, the first episode of the new year. So, happy new year, everyone. Have a great 12 months ahead of you. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe to the podcast on your app of choice, including iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud, and don't miss the new episodes coming out at least weekly. I am your host, Andrei Degler, a tech journalist based in Amsterdam, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik, and the largest panel we have had on this podcast so far. Remember we promised something special for episode number 100? Well, this is it. We have managed to gather almost everyone from the founding team of tech.eu here today, and uh, I will just start by introducing uh, everybody. First up, Alex Barrera, uh, founder and CEO of the Aleph Report and Press42 and professor in marketing and innovation. Hi, Alex. Hello, guys. Happy New Year to everyone. Greetings from Spain. Hey, hey, hey. Next up, John Bradford, former managing director of Techstars London, co-founder of Ormeo Buds and F-Success and founding partner at Motive Partners. Hi, John. Great to have you today. Good afternoon from a very cold London and UK. <laughs> And of course, we have today Robin Wouters. Finally, we're getting him on this podcast, the founding editor of Tech.eu, a former editor at TechCrunch and The Next Web and a lot of other things. Hello, Robin. Hey there. Yeah, I like to play hard to get, uh, but Happy New Year to everyone. And thanks for, for having me on the show. Uh, as if as if we had a choice. <laughs> if, if it was supposed to be the 100th episode, we could not not get you here. So unfortunately, the person we couldn't uh, get to talk to us today here is uh, Roxanne Varza, one of the first hosts of this podcast, actually. Uh, but it doesn't mean that we are not going to hear her voice later, because uh, I have recorded an interview with her separately, and we're going to air it a little bit later during the episode. So the 100th episode of the podcast uh, comes just just a few weeks after the fifth anniversary of tech.eu itself, and uh, we thought that it's a good excuse to talk about, well, us a little bit. So, Natalie, can you just start uh, grilling our uh, uh, panel today about uh, how things were five years ago? Yeah, so, Robin, let's start with you, and how about we turn back the clocks and set the scene to five years ago? So, how did the idea and the concept of tech.eu get started? Yeah. So first of all, that's quite a challenge because I, I started not remembering stuff from last week uh, as I get older. Uh, but I think like five years ago, um, during the summer of 2013, uh, I got fired from the next web, uh, which I was working for full time uh, as an editor uh, for Europe at the time. Uh, and I was actually fired over the phone while I was attending a conference in Rijeka, which is like a small coastal town in Croatia, uh, where I was at a conference together with Alex Barrera. And I remember uh, the morning after I got that call, uh, I sat down with him at breakfast in the hotel. I don't know if Alex remembers this at all, uh, but I said, oh, I remember. do remember. Right? So, so I, I remember telling him like, wow, I just got fired. Like, what do I do now? Uh, not that I was stressing out as much, but, but I felt like there's more that we could have done at the next web to cover Europe. Uh, so what's the alternative? Are there, there are there other publications I should be joining or should we strike out on our own and basically try 
try something of our own. Uh, and as I started mentioning and then telling this idea to Alex, he said, well, we've sort of already had this idea with a number of other people, uh, John included, uh, Roxanne, Evo, who we should also get on a call sometime. Um, they were already considering doing sort of a Europe-focused tech publication. Uh, if I remember correctly, they were thinking of doing it sort of part-time, like as a hobby project with a little bit of funding, but not, not full-time. Um, and that sort of, you know, those two ideas were so similar and the, the people uh, involved already knew each other and sort of knew each other's skill sets. So it made sense to start talking about doing something together rather than separately. Right. Alex, what's your version of this? Oh, it's, it's very similar. I would say it's like the, the other side of the coin. Uh, I, I'll kind of backtrack a little bit because uh, a bunch of us were uh, hired by an uh, incredible person <laughs> that uh, it's pretty much loved in the U.S., uh, Milo Genopolis. Um And at the time, he was running um, a publication that was called uh, The Colonel out of London. So I was a Southern European editor. Ibo was uh, editor for um, Eastern Europe. Roxanne was also writing there. So it was a bunch of us that had already been working together. We had a, a very good time writing for the Colonel. Uh, it for the very short time it enjoyed a lot of uh, traction and a lot of people followed it. Then it was Milo, which was a complicated figure to deal with. Um, at the time, he wasn't that crazy. So he was already getting there, but not fully there. Um, and eventually what happened is uh, kind of the, the editorial side just got completely derailed by Milo. And a bunch of us decided to just like, you know what, uh, some people were getting paid. Uh, I, I personally wasn't doing it because of the money. So we just left. And um, what happened was like six, seven months later, after leaving the publication, a bunch of us started craving writing again about about what was going on in Europe. Um, we had we had had a lot of uh, very good comments about what we wrote, and so eventually, what happened is we started having this recurring conversation of, "Hey, you know, we should keep writing. We should keep doing what we were doing at the Colonel, but without, you know, we don't need the money. We don't need to build a company around this. Just when we have the time." Um, and that was the connection with Robin. I remember like two or three months before the Rieka thing happened, uh, he was fired. Um, I, I remember I reached out to him and say, hey, look, we're thinking about doing this stuff. Would you be interested on in joining? And he said, like, ah, I'm working for the next web. <laughs> I'm doing this stuff. I have my own ideas. And eventually in Rieka, he, he texts me and like, I need to talk to you. Are you still thinking about doing this thing? I'm like, yeah, what happened? Like, I just got fired. I'm like, okay, let's sit down and talk. Um, so it was kind of, a, a, as Robin said, it was a, a wonderful combination of like the, the right people at the right moment. Yeah, that sounds quite perfect. John, how about you? So what was interesting is if anybody's ever had to, uh, the misfortune of having to, to read anything I've written, they'll understand I wasn't on the content side. One of the frustrations I had were regularly I was working startups and one of the biggest problems they had was just trying to raise awareness of what they were up to. And what was interesting was there were a number of quote-unquote publications that were meant to have European coverage. And what I ended up discovering in that process was that basically meant they had some journalists in London. Um, what I then subsequently discovered was most of those journalists were writing US stories because with Midnight, uh, deadlines on most press releases, it was easier for somebody in London to get up in the morning and write an American story 
than it was for them to get up in London and write a European story. And so there was this underlying pent-up requirement and or desire to raise a a better narrative and a better story of what was actually happening across Europe. And when I took this to a number of investors uh, who were also professional investors, uh, all of them came back with a resonating point of view, which was absolutely this this was an issue uh, for a lot of those startups from across Europe. And and I had seen successfully that London in the first wave of Tech City had been very good at telling narratives. And actually to some degree it told a narrative slightly ahead of the curve. It, it was kind of they say there were less things in place than were probably told when the story was first told. Um, and it allowed people to grow into those stories over a period of time. And I felt that not just Tech City, but all of its different startups and all of those startups from across Europe, and, and, and the further away you got from London, the harder those stories were to, to hear and to listen to. Right. Did you, did you all guys knew each other uh, by, by that time? I was actually, I was just going to say that. Um, Evo, Roxanne, Alex, and myself, we knew each other quite well. We kept running into each other at different events. We worked together, um, me and Roxanne, for example, at TechCrunch. Um, so there were, we had our own network, but we already knew each other um, quite well. John, I'd never met before, or maybe once or twice, but I, I didn't quite know him, even though he had his own like substantial network, and, and so did I. For some reason, our paths never really crossed before we started talking about TechEU. And I remember... I remember being relatively nervous about having to, you know, go to London and meet up with John because I knew that he was going to be sort of the guy who was going to bring on the initial investors and sort of put things on the rails to really turn this into like a proper company. I'm super glad that we met and we hit it off and uh, we've been friends ever since. And he's been tremendously helpful uh, both in the beginning and still to this day in, uh, you know, making sure that you uh, doesn't disappear. I I would suspect that we probably stood at the same bar. We were just probably not talking to each other at the same time. (laughs) No, it's actually interesting because I was the one to introduce you two together because both John and I had been (laughs) fighting an interesting fight at the time launching Startup Bookend Europe, um, which that's a different story for a different podcast. Um, and I remember telling uh, Robin, like, look, you need to meet this guy. He, he He's a little uptight and very serious when he's not drunk enough. But, you know, he's a great guy. He's going to get us the money. He's he, he was already, we had had a lot of talks around this stuff. And as John said a, a moment ago, he was on board in, in the sense of the, the, the need for this kind of content uh, for Europe. So it was it was a very easy pairing. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think initially the plan was to have sort of you guys doing this on a part-time basis. You were going to raise 25,000 to 50,000 euros, which was a relatively cool project, but it wasn't super ambitious. I think when I got involved and we said, you know, I'm going to do this full-time, we need to raise more money. We ended up raising a seed round about 150,000 euros, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, uh, by the next year. So it took a couple of months, but we got there. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with, with John. So, so thank you so much for... Uh, for making those initial introductions and then, you know, giving a little bit more ambition to the, the project that you already had in mind. I don't, I don't think, as with any good startup, that it was a problem because there was such a strong and resonating narrative that sat underneath it that uh, it was easy for people to understand uh, the need. And they could see that not only just investing in tech EU was going to be a good investment, but it also helped 
uh, their own investments themselves that they, they were investing in on a day-to-day basis. Andrea and Natalie, we're patting ourselves on the back way too much, asking some other questions. So I wanted to pick up something that John was mentioning about geography and the importance of getting a real geographic spread of the content and how that was really a big part of Tech EU's origin story. So I want to talk a little bit about where the European startup landscape, what it looked like five years ago. So Alex, John, and Robin, you're each joining us from Madrid, London, and Brussels. So what did the startup landscape look like in each of these ecosystems at that time? Who were some of the most notable founders and companies? And what were some of the things that were making the most news at that time that TechEU was getting started? I, I, I'll Let me uh, make confession. When that came in this morning, the first thing I did was um, did an internet search <laughs> to find out what the big stories in 2013 were. I'm older than anybody in the room here. Um, and what's actually interesting is, actually, there's no stories because actually, guess what? There was no coverage. And actually, it was really, really hard to actually find what was going on. So actually, the only information you're really going to get is anecdotal and the odd story uh, which came out of that process, um, rather than if you do a, a search for anything today, you'll find uh, the, the weekly summaries which uh, Robin puts together, which succinctly and sometimes not succinctly provides very detailed information about what is actually happening across Europe. So actually this, the challenge was what we just described. Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about what was happening in Brussels at the time because, to be really honest, not that much has changed. Uh, it's still a small ecosystem. It's still a small community. There's some interesting startups, but that was already the case in 2013. Now, um, in, in general, though, when you look at Europe um, five, six years ago, um, there were already interesting companies coming out of regions like the CEE and the Baltics, but it was very, very low-key. It wasn't covered properly. There weren't. There were a couple of local startup blocks, but almost none of them were writing in English. So it's very difficult to get a, like a decent grasp, um, like a geographic spread of, of information uh, on startup activity and funding. Uh, I, I thought it was really something that was a gap in, in the overall coverage that we started sort of filling. But I was expecting a lot of English publications uh, to follow suit. I was expecting a lot of local startup blocks to sort of add English to the mix. And then, you know, we'd have, we'd have coverage from, from all corners of Europe and then we could sort of uh, put it into a river of news at TechEU. That was the initial goal. Uh, but that never really panned out. If anything, uh, I think there's fewer English language publications on tech in Europe now than there were in 2013, which is interesting. Um, you know, Venture Village was about the Berlin scene. They died. There's no English language publication on German tech that I know of which is strange if you think about it because it's one of the biggest ones. Um, but yeah, uh, definitely a lot has changed. Uh, but I think, if anything, the the fact that more people are paying attention to what's happening in, in different regions now, uh, if thanks to us, that's good. Uh, if not thanks to us, that's also good because other publications are also starting to pay more attention. Uh, but I think that's really something that, you know, helped the ecosystem uh, grow and, and move forward. Who, was, who were our friends from Paris that were doing publications at the time? Uh, Ruth Baguette. Root baguette. Yeah. baguette. Yeah, it was Roxanne was there first, and then uh, Liam took over, and then. But actually, actually, did do you have you seen that Root Baguette is actually still online? It was apparently acquired. Nobody knows who bought it. Nobody knows who's publishing on it right now, but it's still alive. So I don't. And it's in French because I started getting the freaking emails in French. Oh, yeah. So yeah, we need to do some research on that. 
<laughs> anyway, so in, in terms of Spain, I would say um, a lot has changed. At the time, uh, we had very, very small rounds. There wasn't that many people like doing startups. Um, and since we took on like the reporting of what was going on, um, we started seeing like a complete change on the size and scale of the investments, the size of the companies, the reach of the companies. So we went from very local startups to startups that were panning out to Latin America, to Europe, to the U.S. Um, that that trend has kept going, to be honest. Um, I would say that in a way, in my case, I try to cover more of the, uh, the trends more than the actual news. So this was always an ongoing conversation that uh, Robin and I had constantly going on. Robin coming more from the news perspective. And in my case, I have maybe a profile that's uh, more similar to Natalie's uh, research profile. So we were always kind of like pushing and pulling towards our own tendencies and in my case it was always trying to talk about the trends in europe and stuff like that and uh, robin was always saying like oh have you read about this startup that just raised 50k in spain like you haven't caught this shit and i'm like dude 50k seriously i don't give a crap about this company raising 50k uh but it, it is it was hard in the sense because we wanted to do both we wanted to talk about the trends but we also wanted to have enough traffic to 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 drive people to the blog right Sounds right. <clears throat> no, no comment. <laughs> so, Alex, what uh, what has changed then? What do you think has changed in five years uh, for, let's say, South European uh, startup ecosystem? Um, that's a good question. I would say the first one has been the knowledge of the investors. So before there was a lot of investors that were people that had money but had absolutely no clue uh, how to draft a term sheet, how to cooperate with the broader ecosystem. Like the focus was pretty much I'm putting my money here and I want to get money back as soon as possible. It, it's pretty much is still the mentality when you when you uh, take a detour and you look at real estate in Spain. It has the same mentality. Actually, a lot of the money came from real estate into technology in a way. Um, and, and dragging that mentality with it. I think that has changed a lot. I think there's been a big change in, in that sense, in the mentality around that. Uh, there's been a lot of co-investment from outside investors that have actually taught the local investors how to think around these things. And one of the outcomes of that has been uh, companies that have uh, broadened up their scopes in terms of the market that for the for, for them was important, right? Before it was like very, very local, very concentrated on their cities or a bunch of cities in the country. And and since that co-investment started happening, uh, they started looking uh, towards South America, towards Asia, towards Europe, towards the US, right? And, uh, and paired with that also came an increase in the rounds. So because the scopes were bigger, because the stakes were bigger and they needed a lot more gas to, you know, make the, the jump to Latin America, to the U.S., uh, all the rounds just bumped up in terms of the average size of the rounds. And all this stuff has created like um, right now, like a series B round, uh, series B wave in, in Spain where a lot of those entrepreneurs 
have a lot more experience now and now they're becoming the investors now they are co-investing or even starting new companies again with a completely different mindset that we saw before right i mean from a, from a pan-european perspective it's 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 almost impossible to describe how much has changed because you're you're sort of day in day out you're focusing on what's happening in europe and if you take a step back on what the situation was like five years ago i remember when we started tech U, there was already quite a lot of momentum. There were already interesting companies and interesting investors, but it was nowhere near the amount and the scale and the speed at which they move today, uh, which is sort of, if you if you would um, sort of take a step back and look at five years ago, the conferences is one good example. Uh, the web was sort of on its way down. Uh, Pioneers, Web Summit, and Slush were still relatively small, and that brought like a new uh, wave of attention from investors. Uh, you see this in the investments as well, um, coming from outside of Europe. Um, that amount that has, has changed so uh, drastically that the amount of investment coming from from the U.S. and from Asia increasingly uh, is going up tremendously. Uh, the amount of people who are returning from from places like Silicon Valley and setting up companies in Europe, while they used to have this mentality of you know we have to move away just to be able to do uh, to scale a company, uh, that's changing so much. And it's it, a lot of it's anecdotal. A lot of it you can see in the numbers, uh, but like it's the the whole picture of it that that really. Uh, it's difficult to grasp for, for, for many people, including ourselves, really. It's very difficult. Well, I, I, I'll add, if you want, to what Robin was saying. Um, I think one of the biggest change, changes beyond the investment and, and what we were talking about, uh, and I think uh, Robin touched upon it briefly, is not only the fact that um, founders, European founders, are coming back to Europe to do their own things. Uh, it's the fact that... Uh, Americans are actually fleeing the valley. They're fleeing uh, the startup hubs in the U.S. and are setting up shop here. And that reversal of the trend, even though it's still small compared to the uh, U.S. exodus, it's pretty much a big change uh, when you look at the larger landscape. Do you actually see it happening that uh, that much, that often? Because I kind of I kind of fail to see it in uh, in amounts that are that would be significant enough to even talk about it. Well, I would say, like personally speaking, um, I get an average of like I would say one or two emails every month, every two months, about an American relocating to Spain or asking about Portugal, for example, which is another another uh, common destiny uh, destination. Um, a lot of people I, I know what they're doing is they're going south uh, in in the U.S. So they're moving from the valley to L.A. Uh, but a bunch of others are coming here, and a lot of Europeans are not going there. Also, and that I, I know a lot of friends that say like we don't need to go there anymore. I mean, m we might need to go there and visit, and you know maybe open an office at some point, but we can do it from here. And you do see a lot of American and Canadian founders in Berlin um, and Portugal just started a new startup visa program. Lots of American and Canadian founders are interested in going to Portugal. You also see them coming to the UK and then in the Baltics also. So we did the research with Startup Estonia and they have a startup visa program and they have tons of Americans and Canadians there. I think they um, had over a thousand applicants successful applications to that program from people all over the world, but um, an, a very large number of them from the United States and North America uh, interested in coming to startup in Europe, which I think is really significant. 
Yeah, I think it's definitely happening, but I'm sort of, uh, I understand where Andre's question is coming from because I don't think it's happening to that degree that it's really, that we can call it a trend. Uh, I think the bigger trend is actually the increased mobility of people within Europe, um, people from Southern Europe, like places like Italy, Greece, uh, Spain, even um, just setting up shop in Berlin or or. or um, like even even Paris or the Nordics in Baltics is, is really not that much of a surprise anymore. It, it was very rare five years ago, and now it's like happening all over the place constantly. Yeah. So, John, now it's uh, now it's your turn. What's, what has changed over five years in your local ecosystem, in your case, the UK? What do you think has been the biggest, uh, biggest change, biggest trends? Uh, I think that's a very dangerous question to ask in 2019, sitting here in London. I think... One can talk about all of the technology and you can talk about investors and you can talk about other things, but actually the only thing, the thing which is underlying this all is, um, is politics, which has kind of completely thrown a spanner in the works to tech.eu. The, the question I had in my head was, do we need to, to rename tech.eu to something else? Are you going to continue to support London stories from the 1st of April? Considering the fact that we're already covering Turkey, Russia and Israel, <laughs> I think in terms of geopolitics, we're going to stay away from that and just cover Europe the way we've always done. Yeah, I, I think uh, if, if one takes or, uh, ignores the stories themselves, I think the thing which is really interesting is um, the UK, I personally think I've kind of, I'm going to be political here, have shot themselves in the foot where they were the obvious destination uh, for any uh, non-European company to land itself into Europe. I think there are big question marks around, does one open up in London today or does one open up somewhere else? I think there was a, a rush about two years ago where uh, everybody were talking about, would it be Germany or would it be France or where would it be across Europe? And the reality is I think all of them have benefited. But I also think that... This, and this actually potentially drives the ecosystem in Europe in a much more fundamental way, which is where French teams or German teams or Spanish teams would have historically said that the first and obvious place we should do is pack our bags, go to London and set ourselves up in London. None of them are doing that anymore. The only people who are actually setting up businesses in London today are people who are already pre-existing in those locations. And so actually the impact of local jurisdictions being able to maintain their own jurisdiction and their own ecosystem rather than losing them to somewhere like London, I think will have a much more long-term profound effect on those local tech ecosystems and create what we always believed would happen, which was a much more distributed system, which is what the US market is gradually moving towards. It still has the the, the, the New York, San Francisco kind of uh, nodes but you can see, uh, as they talk about it, the rise of the rest, uh, the emergence of uh, technology and ecosystems in, in much more broader number of ecosystems across. So I think it's not what's what's happened, it's what's not happened. And it's London's uh, limitations around its ability to attract the next generation of tech ecosystems and um, entrepreneurs coming from those other locations outside of London. Right. <clears throat> Okay. Sorry, that sounded really depressing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was... <laughs> okay, okay, no problem at all. I thought we weren't going to talk about Brexit. <laughs> I, I was waiting for the B word to be mentioned. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brexit and Bradford. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, let's let's get to a more personal question then. Let's make it let's make it a bit uh, brighter if possible. Uh, what have you? Uh, what was the most rewarding experience? Do you think for you personally uh, that has uh, come out of foundingtech.eu? And what has been the most unusual maybe thing that happened to you because of that most surprising thing maybe? So personal experiences. Oh man, that's, that's difficult and easy at the same time because. You know, uh, starting TechEU with this this incredible bunch of people uh, has been a reward on its own. And it, it like like for me personally, it gets me to travel to places that normally I would never go to talk to people who are changing the world, even if just a little bit. And even, even if it's just their, their world, like you go to Cyprus, you go to Moldova, you go to places like uh, like Lithuania and like there's stuff happening there. And we're like a, taking a front row seat at something that nobody really was paying attention to before, um, which I feel is, is much, much uh, like, a, like a privilege uh, to be able to witness. Well, in my case, I think it's, uh, it's a little bit more if you want to say naive, but, um, and, and it kind of started in a way at the kernel. I remember, um, I was once in London and walking down the street, someone stopped me and you said, you're the guy with a hat. You're the guy that writes for the kernel. And I'm like, who the fuck are you? Uh, and and th- this feeling has actually uh, poured over TechEU also when you go to an event and you go like, oh, you're, you're Alex, you're one of the co-founders of TechEU. You know, that, that kind of admiration and that kind of like impact that you create on people, it's, it st- still shocks me even now. Uh, and in terms of like one of the most incredible experiences, I would say, and, and Rowing, I, I'm not sure Rowing knows this, um, but in 2014, uh, I wrote a four-piece uh, uh, on Bitcoin, and I had a very strong argument with Robin at the time because I wanted to talk about not Bitcoin, but actually blockchain. At the time, no one was talking about blockchain. Everyone was Bitcoin, Bitcoin, Bitcoin. And I said, like, no, dude, this is the future. This technology is going to be amazing. And I want to explain it to people so that they understand it. And Robin was like, dude, everyone is writing about Bitcoin, why would you want to write about this? If you write it, you have to make it good. I'm like, trust me, I'll write about it and I'll write it from a technical perspective, from the actual protocol perspective for people that have no clue. Um, we published the four uh, four pieces and uh, it got some traction. It got some okay traffic. Um, but very recently, I actually checked the analytics and it was fascinating to watch how in 2014, we had some traffic. But then by the end of 2017, the the articles got picked up drastically. And it had more traffic at the end of 2017 than it had uh, at the time we published. And I remember I told Robin at the time, it's like, dude, this is the kind of article that eventually will get traffic because people will come and revisit these things. Um, and uh, I, I know Robin doesn't know this, but I did check the analytics and it actually got more traffic uh, uh, last year, uh, two years ago. That's awesome. And I didn't know that, which goes to show uh, always surround yourself with people who are much smarter than yourself, which I did. So, John, bring it in the darkness. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think the, the most interesting thing I ever find, and it's not as a finder or somebody who's participated in helping support this, is actually the other side of the equation, is actually as a reader of what TechEU presents on a week-to-week basis is the number of uh, stories I see coming from places I wouldn't expect to see interesting stories that just don't get any coverage anywhere else. 
I think is just amazing. Uh, and the sorts of companies which are actually raising money and the progression they're making. And I'm not thinking about Paris and I'm not thinking about Berlin. I'm thinking about the other locations and much, much as you'll laugh, but Belgium has quite a few interesting startups and have just quietly gone on and built amazing businesses. And, and none of this is getting any reporting or nobody's ever talking about this stuff beyond uh, what uh, Robin and the team uh, are putting together. And, and that's, that's the, the, the thing which keeps delivering on a day to day basis. And, and, and I know that's uh, a comment that I hear on a regular basis from many of the colleagues I work with and talk to. Right. Okay. Enough. Uh, in, enough talking. Uh, saying good things about uh, about ourselves. Uh, <laughs> let's go for the future. Okay. John is definitely going to like this question because. <laughs> yeah, we, we can start with John then. So the, the last question would be like this. Let's just move to the future part and talk about the ecosystem, the pan-European ecosystem, including the UK, in the year 2019. Uh, so two questions uh, for everyone, uh, starting with uh, John. What do you expect to happen this year? And uh, what uh, are you personally going to be doing within the ecosystem this year? Uh, so what do I think? I think 2019 is going to be as bad as 2018 was. I don't think. Uh, I think uh, politics will continue to drive a force through this whole agenda. I think people will become much more cognizant of the impact of technology on wider uh, systems, uh, if that's the best way of describing it. Um, I think uh, the the days of Facebook's just a newsfeed where you share a bunch of things with your friends is everybody suddenly woken up to that. I, I can't believe that actually Facebook still hasn't endured even more pressure than it has. Uh, and, I, and I'm astounded that Google has avoided any questions around privacy. Um, so I think that's not going to go away. Um, I think the impact of what um, Brexit is or isn't going to be is is going to hang over the UK and the whole of the European system for a while. Um, uh, what was the second question again? What are you going to do? Uh, going to be doing yourself within the ecosystem? What's your own personal plan? What's my own personal plan is is to to to, to get to the end of the year in, in one piece. Unfortunately or unfortunately, I have so many side projects and I've got a couple in the works, um, which are my, my big thing that I, 2019 is all about is, uh, I was part of the, the agenda and the, the whole process of helping support mentorship, uh, through accelerators and through other different mechanisms. The thing that I feel most, uh, passionate about at the minute is how do we support the CEOs across Europe better? How do we create a generation of coaches um, which are not necessarily mentors? They're not necessarily people from inside an organization. How do you create a coaching community to help support the, the best and the brightest CEOs from across Europe and growing businesses to actually help them emerge and do more interesting things? So uh, watch this space. There are a few things that I've got going to, to try and drive that forward. Okay, this is, this is really interesting. Robin? Uh, yeah, so we just crunched the numbers for 2018. Um, so surprisingly, the, the investment volume went down in 2018 compared to 2017. Uh, we'll publish a little bit more uh, in the coming days. But uh, but it's interesting to see because despite all the momentum and despite all the, all the attention and the great companies coming out of Europe, 
the investment volume actually went down. Um, exit volume went up quite a lot. So I think that's going to be a continued trend in 2019. Uh, I think we'll see a little bit more of stagnation. Uh, but the good part is that um, the funding is uh, being geographically spread a lot more than it used to be. So you see the CE region, the Baltics, the Nordics uh, coming up more and more. So there's, you know, everyone who was expecting things to be more centralized in the big hubs like London, Paris and Berlin uh, is going to be proven wrong uh, because the opposite is happening. Um, and it, it's starting to see the reflection in the numbers. Uh, so what else do I think is going to happen in 2019? I'm, very, I'm a very bad futurist, but I think more involvement from corporations, uh, both on the investment side, uh, but also like spinning off their own companies and, and, and uh, internal innovation. Uh, I think policymakers will wake up more than they probably have. Uh, I'm probably should, um, to the fact that startups really make a difference and that you have to have a coherent innovation and research program, uh, both domestically, but also, you know, in, in research um, collaborations with other countries and, and, and across, you know, education facilities and, and, and corporations and startups. Um, what else? Very tough, uh, because yeah, I don't think... It, like Europe, for example, if you look at the, the areas that Europe is strong in, at least when it comes to the funding and the exits, it's uh, health technology, so medical biotech, um, very SaaS-focused B2B software, um, and fintech, of course. So those are always like the three big ones. And then you have suddenly have like fashion comes up like one year because a couple of big companies and then music because of Spotify and SoundCloud. And then another year it's this company. But I think the core of the European tech ecosystem is going to continue to be those industries medical technology, fintech, and B2B SaaS uh, software. Um, and I think we also have a sort of an opportunity in Europe to take advantage of the, um, the new technologies coming up, um, artificial intelligence, VR, uh, and whatnot, and, and sort of play at least somewhat of a leading role uh, to, to a certain degree, uh, which is part of the opportunity that we have here. Right. So how about yourself personally? What are you going to do? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I already mentioned that I feel very privileged to do what I do, uh, which is to travel around Europe and to talk to as many people as I can to form an understanding, but also to learn more uh, about what makes entrepreneurs tick, what makes investors invest, what makes policymakers you know, decide on certain policies. And if anything, my hope is to be the, doing the exact same thing as I did in 2018, which is to travel and to have conversations with interesting people. Alex, your take. Okay, so... Um... I'll, I'll connect with what John was saying and, and robbing. I mean, I'm running out of themes here. Uh, but it, it is true that there's been a massive collision between uh, politics and technology, and that's going to keep going and it's going to get worse. And I think the a lot of people are not seeing the whole problem here, which is as technology automates more and more things, the rift, the social rift within many societies is growing. And this is one of the reasons where why a lot of uh, nationalistic uh, movements are growing, not just in Europe, uh, worldwide, I would say. Um, and I think that's not going to go away. That's actually going to get worse. Uh, the more we invest in companies that take away jobs uh, and we're not being able to replace those jobs fast enough, is going to create conflict. And that conflict is going to keep going up. And I think 2019 might be a pretty devastating year because if well not if when the debt crisis actually gets triggered which eventually will happen um we're gonna see a lot of pain um we're gonna see a lot of people not being able to to make uh uh month's end and a lot of that 
problem is going to be blamed on technology eventually. Um, so it's going to be a, a, a turbulent year, I would say, uh, or at least the beginning of a turbulent period uh, during the next few years. Um, Another trend that I would like to highlight, and, and Robin actually touched briefly on, on some of his comments before, is China. Um, I'm a, a big, uh, I'm very bullish on China, and I think that a lot more people should be looking towards Asia right now um, instead of towards the, uh, the US or Latin America. And I don't believe we're even scratching the surface in terms of um, training the people in Europe to do that. Uh, just to give you an example, this year, the 2018 uh, at South Summit, I went through the schedule and through all the talks, and we had hundreds of talks, and not one was talking about China. Not a single one was talking about China and the increase of investment, the the menace, uh, how the big uh, Chinese and Japanese corporations are actually coming and getting involved in the European uh, scene, and. I think that's just a big mistake uh, to the point that my kids are learning Chinese and it's not because I think a Chinese language is fantastic, but because I think it's going to be um, a, necessi- a necessity for the next generations. In terms of what I'm going to do this year, um, I kind of, uh, I'm going to keep doing um, what I've been doing for the past uh, two years, which is writing for the Alec, uh, the Alec report, where I try to precisely do this uh, talk a lot more about these trends and the new things that are coming and what are the consequences of all this technology and politics and regulations that we're having on the medium and long term. So I try to focus a little bit more on the future and say, okay, guys, careful, you know, the train is coming. Um, so hopefully this year is going to be a good year for, for the Aleph. There's going to be a lot of stuff happening um, and, and we get more people following and at least getting a little bit more enlightenment about how they should start getting to uh, uh, how they should start preparing for what's going to come. I wonder how the Chinese prediction that you just uh, made uh, is uh, connected to the number of teapots you have around you. <laughs> well, it's uh, sadly it's not. Uh, I wish it was. Actually, the, ri- the, 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 ra- the rise of the Chinese entrepreneurs, if anything, it's making tea more expensive because these people are buying teapots and doing this shit and ri- pushing the prices up. So it's actually quite the opposite. <laughs> okay, so for once, the dark, uh, the dark side of uh, predictions is coming not from John, but from Alex. Now, uh, let's move to another nice part of uh, today's podcast, which is uh, uh, the interview that I announced uh, earlier. Uh, let's hear from uh, another founding member of Tech.eu, uh, Roxanne Varza. I have to have talked to her and uh, asked similar questions about uh, the future and the past of the European startup ecosystem and the main trends that we can see. Let's hear it. Oh, hello, Roxanne. Uh, I have already introduced you uh, quickly uh, at the beginning of the podcast, but I would really like you to probably introduce yourself and tell a little bit more about uh, what you are uh, doing now. Yeah, so obviously I uh, was part of the co-founding team at Tech.eu, but also today I'm the director at Station F in Paris. Um, been kind of following the European ecosystem for about 10 years now. That's when I left the U.S., Uh, so I've been really, really excited to see it, you know, change and develop so much, and especially the French ecosystem, which I followed a lot more closely. So five years ago, uh, when Tech.eu was founded, uh, what were you doing back then, and how did you come together with the rest of the founding team? 
Oh my gosh. So five years ago, actually it feels like, somehow it feels like longer. Um, But I think at the time in 2013, I was moving back to France from the UK. So uh, I had joined Microsoft, was running Microsoft Ventures out of Paris. And I can't remember exactly who got in touch with who, but the group just kind of gathered. And we were like, we need to do something uh, really to talk about all this great stuff that's happening in the European tech ecosystem. We want to create a dedicated media. And then I remember we all just like, we're like, we need Robin on this team. And I think that's really kind of the whole beginning of the story. And from there, it just became tech.eu. Right. So, and what it, uh, what was it like in general in Europe and in France uh, back then, five years ago? What were b- maybe like the biggest uh, companies, the biggest news stories? Uh, what was happening? Wow. Well, five years ago was before Brexit. It was before uh, was before Station F. So, I think in two thousand thirteen, uh, we had a couple of accelerators. So, accelerators were still relatively new. I think we had the first accelerator programs in France in. 2011. So we were starting to kind of see some of the momentum picking up, but it wasn't anywhere near what we're seeing today. So today we're seeing, you know, we have quite a few unicorns. I think we announced like 17 new European unicorns were created last year. We had, you know, some of the biggest uh, tech IPOs in the world were actually European companies. So I think some of that was still kind of like in a distant future back then. Um, So I really think Europe has dramatically changed since since we launched tech.eu. Right. And uh, while we were at it, uh, since you're very much involved in the French ecosystem, being the director of Station F, what do you think of the local ecosystem itself? So what has changed in these five years? Because I think a lot, right? Yeah, a lot has changed. So actually, Station F has now been open for about a year and a half. And I think it's really been kind of like a catalyzer for the French ecosystem. So I think a lot of stuff was already kind of happening here. We already had startups that, you know, were able to secure funding and build and go international and become big successes. But maybe today, it's just a lot more visible. And we've kind of also made um, made a location that a lot of entrepreneurs from around the world want to come to. And I think before French was kind of seen, France was seen as an ecosystem where you know, it's for the French entrepreneurs and maybe not anybody else. And today we have people from really everywhere on campus at Station F. We have one third of our entrepreneurs that come from outside of France. A lot of them are not even European, don't speak any French. And that's something we probably couldn't have really pictured. And naturally, some of it was probably impacted by Brexit. Some of it was impacted by Donald Trump. Some of it was impacted by the Silicon Valley prices that are just like ridiculously high. Um, So I think we're really just seeing a huge change in terms of, you know, the ecosystem plays today. And France has really kind of risen to the top, which is something a lot of people actually didn't predict. Right. So I will be back to the topic of tech.eu in a minute, I promise. But I just wanted to diverge to one more question about the French ecosystem. We were taping this interview uh, on the week of uh, CES in Las Vegas. And I just read in the morning that only the region of Paris has sent uh, 35 uh, startups uh, to the trade show. So what do you think of this? Uh, Do you think this is actually necessary to send this many startups? Do you think all these startups are actually good enough even uh, to be there? Do you think the ecosystem system in France uh, is ready for uh, this kind of en masse uh, um, offensive. So this is actually not new this year. This is something that's been happening for, I think, about you know, maybe one or two years now, France has been sending, I think they send over 200 companies or 200 startups uh, to CES. Um, And I think it's actually the country that has the most startups after the US. So it's like very 
we go there like with a big force of startups. And so what's been really interesting for me is, yeah, you can ask the question of, does it make sense? Are these cars, are these startups qualified? Do they really get that much out of it? Um, but I actually think France as an ecosystem benefits tremendously from doing that. Um, what we've noticed or what I've, what I've seen, I think a lot of the American media has picked up on it. So we saw a lot of articles, especially last year, um, saying, you know, whoa, where did all these, we didn't even know France had an ecosystem and now they're sending all these companies to CES. And we also have people like, uh, John Chambers, former CEO of Cisco that was here. Um, actually I think he was here in December and he was saying, you know, he didn't even know that there were startups in France until he started seeing them at CES. So I actually think it has a huge impact to do initiatives like this. Yeah. A lot of it is marketing, but it makes a difference. Right. Well, yeah, at least, uh, at the very least to now, everybody knows what La French Tech is. That's for sure. Right. <laughs> no more questions. <laughs> now, so let's get back to uh, tech.eu and uh, maybe your, some, some of your personal uh, experience with that. What do you think have been the most rewarding experiences for you personally that uh, have come out uh, of uh, founding tech.eu? And maybe what has been the most like surprising or unusual thing that happened to you because of that? So I, many people may not know this, but I actually used to uh, co-host the podcast with Robin and with Neil. And actually that was the first podcast that I ever did in my life. And so I think that was a really great experience. Um, also because uh, what we were doing at the time was really doing a full recap of everything that had happened that week. So you could really keep up with a lot of the, the key news coming out of Europe. And so I absolutely loved that. And then I've also just really liked seeing tech.eu grow. Um, I think it's becoming a really strong brand. And, you know, I think Europe really needs it. So it's been really, really rewarding to see that. Right. And I have to say that you did great uh, back in the day when you were hosting the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I, I was listening to it every week back then. So I, uh, I really, really liked it. Thank you. I think it was great. Dear listener. <laughs> 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 so let's move on to to the predictions. So everybody has everybody else on the podcast just uh, has uh, done uh, their predictions for the year 2019 and now it's uh, your turn. What do you expect to happen in the European tech ecosystem this year and what are you personally going to be doing within the ecosystem? Well, I think I'm not going to add I mean there's like a whole bunch of, you know, analysis and predictions regarding like specific tech trends and where are we going with, you know, like AI and this and that. And so I think I'm not going to add too much to that debate. What I've been really personally pleased to see is especially towards the end of 2018, a lot more organizations have started to really consider diversity and tech for good very seriously. So I'm really hoping that it's no longer going to be a little niche where we think of tech for good as like little NGOs that can scrape together cash. Um, and diversity is like, you know, we're just talking about it because it's nice to talk about it. I think we're actually seeing some very serious organizations take it very seriously. And so I'm really expecting it to be a key topic for 2019. So are you participating in any of these initiatives uh, yourself? Of course. Everything we do at Station F, we have diversity at the core of it. Um, I was really proud to see the Atomico, uh, you know, the, the new initiative that they have around diversity. I think we're seeing tons and tons of really great stuff pop up around Europe. And so, uh, yeah, definitely has been a key topic for me as well. Great. Brilliant. So, and then we are uh, moving to the last part, uh, and uh, this is uh, something that everybody else is going to be doing after uh, this interview, but you are the first to give our listeners a recommendation of the week. So it can be anything, an article, a book, a podcast, uh, uh, something that you really want to share uh, with people who will listen to this podcast later. 
So I would recommend this really great podcast by tech.eu. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, what I would really, I, I actually, I'll start with what I'm currently reading um, because I'm really into it. I'm not finished with it yet, but I'm reading a book called Bad Blood. Um, and it's actually about the story behind Theranos. So that big company that was valued at, I don't know how many billions and, you know, and ended up that they had like a product that was completely fraudulent. And, you know, it was really kind of a Silicon Valley success to absolutely nothing story. Um, and I think what's really been kind of fascinating for me, because I read a lot of the articles and you think like, oh my God, these big liars and cheaters and stuff like that. But when you actually dig into the story a little bit more, you can kind of see also how Silicon Valley also kind of created and supported um, the founder and they really were striving to create like a female success story so much and there's so many practices from the startup ecosystem like fake it till you make it and stuff like that that you cannot just apply across the board um, so I think really fascinating to see how startup culture can actually also encourage the wrong uh, practices in some cases so I think really interesting and I think it really helps um, entrepreneurs kind of gain consciousness so that's a book that I totally love reading also because there's scandal and all the drama that you'd want in a startup story. <laughs> right. Yeah. There are very few proverbs that I hate more than fake it till you make it, I have to yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, this one is a very good proof of why you should not do that, especially in the health industry. Perfect. So if our listeners are looking for the region for uh, 2019, this should be the first uh, book in the list. This is my first book anyway. So, Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, great. I guess I guess that's it for this interview. Thank you so much, Roxanne, uh, for joining and uh, have a great uh, 2019 ahead of you. Thank you. You too. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu, the hundreds episode thereof, where we have uh, the founding team of Tech.eu almost uh, full uh, coming uh, together to talk about the past and the future and uh, whatnot. So uh, let's move on to the next, uh, the next part, and this is the recommendations, my favorite part in which we recommend stories, books, podcasts, and whatever else we have stumbled upon that uh, we think would make Make a lot of sense for our listeners to check out as well. So Natalie, can you start with your recommendation? Sure. Um, be happy to. So my recommendation this week is a really great tweet storm by Mecca Opriki. And Mecca is the engineering director for growth at Google in San Francisco. And in the post on Twitter, he discusses a concept of undermatching and describes how Elon Musk's most important employee is a lumberjack. So let's unpack this a little bit. So the lumberjack he's talking about is Tom Mueller, the CTO of Propulsion at SpaceX. Tom grew up in a family of loggers in rural Idaho. His family wasn't particularly wealthy, but from a young age, he always loved rockets. So in high school, his geometry teacher recognized his passion and encouraged him to become a mechanical engineer, something he never would have considered given his upbringing. In fact, he supported himself through college as a lumberjack on the weekends and during university holidays. So undermatching is a term that describes when individuals from rural, underserved, or minority backgrounds choose not to pursue intellectually rigorous careers. Many times, people with these profiles don't have the necessary role models or roadmap to help them realize their potential. But a minor intervention, such as that geometry teacher, or a more major intervention, such as building a company culture that is inclusive, can really make all the difference and nudge people towards these careers. 
So this story highlights the importance of inclusion and encourages us to think a little bit about what we can do to help build communities in tech that are open, welcoming, and supportive. And this is something that's really been um, in the, the dialogue um, lately at different events. We've heard lots of people really bringing this to the forefront. Um, and Mecca writes that talent is everywhere, but opportunity is not. And this is something that's readily apparent if you're spending time in different tech communities across Europe, and you never know what sort of potential that's still remaining to be unlocked across the continent. So in the show notes, we'll link to that thread as well as a, to a talk that Mecca did on building inclusive engineering teams, which is really excellent. And for anyone that's managing engineers, it's definitely worth checking out. Perfect. Thanks a lot for sharing this one. I will definitely go and watch after we record this episode. Uh, Robin, now it's uh, your turn. What do you recommend? Yeah, so you're asking for recommendations on articles, books, podcasts, or anything else. Uh, so it got me thinking, uh, because I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, actually none outside of the TechEU one. Uh, never have. Actually been a podcast person. Uh, but I think but a I'm... devoted audience we got. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I think I'm going to start listening to the Jim Jeffries show, because he's such a great comic, in my opinion. Uh, but that's sort of outside of the, uh, the scope of the question. Uh, in terms of articles, there's so much good stuff that I read almost on a daily basis, because I really make an effort on, on finding good stuff to read so so I would just you know advise you to follow my Twitter uh, occasional uh, rants about PR and pictures of my kids but also sometimes uh, really good recommendations of uh, good reads um, now I, I also wanted to to mention that I want to read more books in 2019 as I, I'm constantly annoyed by how few books I read uh, on an annual basis uh, but I did read a book last year 2018 uh, which is shoe dog uh, by Phil Knight who's a uh, the creator of Nike, uh, of course, uh, the, the the sports apparel company, um, which I think is a very interesting book. It came out a few years ago, um, so it's not necessarily a new book, but it became a bestseller. You might have already read it. If you haven't, uh, it's a really, really good recommendation because it covers the real founding story of Nike. Uh, it cuts off abruptly when the company went public in the 80s, so it's really about the, the formative years, I would say. Um, there's lots of interesting stories to be told about the last decades, but Phil Knight actually doesn't go into that at all. Um, I found Shoe Dog to be a really great book for business people, um, but it's also just a really great read for anyone. Um, for instance, I particularly liked how how Knight uh, backpacked around the world even before even having the idea to start a business, let alone start a company like Nike. Um, so as a frequent traveler myself, that really resonated with me. Uh, so that's that, that would be my book recommendation. And finally, I would like to recommend an application that I think everyone sort of knows of already. Uh, at least in tech circles, but I want to give it a special mention as it really did change my life in a not-so-minor way uh, in 2018, and that app is Calm.com, uh, which was founded in the U.S. but by British British entrepreneurs, uh, which most people know to be a competitor to Headspace in the meditation and mindfulness space. Uh, but the thing that really stuck with me is that they have a feature called Sleep Stories, uh, which is basically stories between 20 and 40 minutes that are narrated by the, the likes of Stephen Fry and Matthew McConaughey, who uh, actually became an investor in the startup recently, uh, they really just help you calm down and doze off and fall asleep by telling a story in a very monotone voice. Uh, and as someone who's had trouble falling asleep and getting enough deep sleep uh, since my childhood, really, uh, it really amazes me how simple yet effective uh, it is, at least for me. So it's definitely one to try out for other bad sleepers out there. Oh, so this means that uh, our podcast does not make you want to go to sleep. Is that correct? Not yet. Not yet. Perfect. <laughs> John, I saw, you, I saw you showing a thumbs up when uh, uh, Robin mentioned the name of the book. Did you like it too? Yeah, I, I cheated. I didn't read it. I listened to it. So I'm a big fan of Audible. Um, 
as someone who spends their life staring at screens and looking at things to read, uh, the last thing I want to do is read another book. And it's something I've, I've never really done in the past. So I'm a big, big fan of Audible and, uh, or any other audio books that are readily available. Yeah, I have I have a bit of a problem with that just because I don't really have any places where I would be comfortable listening to a book because I don't commute, I work from home. Like I, over the last couple of years, have taken up running. So the equivalent of Headspace for me is go for a run for 30 minutes or 45 minutes and listen to some uh, audio books. Actually, having said that, 2018 was the year of, as I would describe, the year of me running naked. And that's a really scary concept <laughs> for most people. But actually, <laughs> Alex is just about to jump in. Elaborate, please. Uh, I want the pictures <laughs> somewhere. No, it's actually running without any uh, earphones and without any electronic devices and just going for a run for 45 minutes. Uh, so no podcasts, no audiobooks, just 45 minutes of just uh, your own space. Uh, it's equivalent of or my equivalent of meditating, which is go for a 45-minute run. Also no wearables? Oh, I might go with my my watch to make sure I know how far I'm running and how quickly I'm running. <laughs> right. So, John, what are your recommendations for this week? Um, so I actually coming out a different way, which is, uh, as I described, I'm not one that's big on books. Um, and podcasts, I kind of fade in and out of on occasions. Um, so the thing I kind of found myself hooked to I continue to be hooked to is actually really good newsletters. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of people in this room who have their own view on those um, and have their own personal favorites. My personal favorite is one called uh, Exponential View by a personal friend of mine called um, Hazim, um, which is just a little bit left of center and it's, it's less about tech news. And, and what he pulls together is quite interesting stories uh, around some of the things that were described earlier, the geopolitical stuff, uh, AI, uh, impact of uh, climate and green technology, um, and slightly further afield in terms of um, what's happening in technology today, but more a, a quite a thoughtful newsletter about what might be happening tomorrow. He also has a lovely section in it, which is how to sound smart at a dinner table. Uh, or a dinner party as well. So he throws in some interesting facts nice. as well. That's that's interesting. I actually I actually didn't know it. Uh, I, I I don't read it at the moment. So I will I will definitely definitely subscribe. Alex and lots of emojis on that one. Lots of emojis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you like it or do you not like it, Natalie? What? No, what it's it? great. It's it's just very hard because everyone seems to be coming out with a newsletter these days. Yep. There are so many and. It, it it's hard to keep up on all of them um and it's if you're trying for inbox zero it's tough he's 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 going to do the newsletter of newsletters yeah i guess it's about time techie you does it already <laughs> <laughs> no we do do the green so alex what do you recommend well first of all i would agree like asim's newsletter is actually fantastic i've been following it from nearly from the very beginning so it's uh, a bit big fan of what he's doing there um i'll i'm gonna go in uh diametrically opposite direction here uh i would say my recommendation for people and especially with what's gonna come is to take some time off uh i see way too many people uh breaking their minds against technology there's this uh notion that 
we still uh, groom that the human mind can keep up with technology. This notion that you know we're, humans are at the center of everything, and you know we're capable of dominating everything, and it's actually breaking people's mind not understanding that technology goes faster than our brains, and you just have to live with it. With the fact that you know you won't be able to read all the newsletters, you won't be able to read all your emails, you won't be able to read all the tweets, and trying to keep up is just a way of stressing your brain and 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 eventually breaking your mind. So I would advise a lot of people to, especially thinking that 2019 is going to be a hard year, uh, to take time off, to just uh, sit down, to think. I, I would say the same stuff as like, take one day and just walk or run and think. No devices, no anything. Just just sit down on a bench and think. Uh, it's actually funny that Robin brought up the Calm app because uh, I believe five years ago I told Robin, you need to do meditation, man. You need to, you know, calm down, relax, be able to sleep, you know. Uh, so I'm glad that eventually he found a tool that, that's helping him with that. Um, I would, uh, I, I'm going to whack John here. Uh, I think people need to read more and not just listen to things. Listening to stuff is great. And uh, I, before I keep going, I will give a disclaimer i'm like uh robin i'm not a big podcast uh listener i do listen to several ones but i'm not a, a huge fan and i think it has to do in a way with the way we consume information like certain generations are easier at consuming certain kinds of information so if you ask younger people probably they're easier they, they're easy going with video than they are with reading stuff so but that being said um this year i read 42 books read not listened to but actually read um and one of the things i keep seeing is reading not just listening but reading the actual words focuses your mind allows you to disconnect from things and to train your brain to be able to focus on something for more than five minutes um and so that's i would say one of my biggest recommendations in including reading fiction people keep reading bullshit business books and i'm not saying some of them are bad uh but there's so many wonderful literature out there that can teach you way better things than reading the next elon musk drama uh with i don't know smoking crack or something like that which eventually will happen um two book recommendations that had a big impact on me this year one would be a book from the 1960s uh from rachel carson called silent spring uh, an oldie, but definitely a really powerful book in terms of understanding how much damage we're doing to our ecosystem. Uh, the other one, well, on addition to that, Rachel uh, was an incredible writer. So it wasn't just the fact that she was an incredible scientist, but she was also a very good writer. Uh, then the other one, it's kind of connected to what's happening in the U.S. right now. Uh, it's a, a classic, uh, Grapes of Wrath uh, by John Steinbeck. And it's worth reading now because it's so amazing when you read it and you and you think, well, that's exactly what's happening right now. I mean, that's the same exact situation uh, that's happening in California, that's happening in places in the U.S. that are happening in other areas of the world. So I think it's a book that if you read it at school, uh, maybe now it's a time to reread it and 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 get in your brain a lot of the behaviors that took us there. Uh, so that would be me. Okay, great. 
So I will I will finish up with a recommendation of my own. So after all these uh, really big and deep uh, recommendations, I'm just going to recommend uh, an article, really, actually a Q&A session. That, uh, and this, uh, this one was uh, published a few weeks ago, but I really still wanted to mention it since uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't publish any podcasts since then. And it's an interview uh, with uh, a guy named uh, Kai Fu Lee, who's a very interesting man uh, himself. He used to be the president of uh, Google China. He used to work at uh, Apple and Microsoft, and he is now a VC and uh, an expert in the field of artificial intelligence. Uh, he's also written a book, and the book is called AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. And as you may have noticed, the title of the book didn't mention Europe. And that's what the whole interview I'm recommending is all about. Uh, because in Lee's opinion, Europe has no chance to get even the bronze medal and uh, come after Silicon Valley and China in the AI race. I will just mention a few quotes uh, here, really short ones, to, um, uh, to, to, to kind of... Uh, draw the tone of uh, of the story. So quote number one, Europe has none of the success factors of the US and China. Number two, Europe has no VC entrepreneurial ecosystem. The entrepreneurs in Europe are nowhere near as innovative as the American ones, nor as tenacious as the Chinese ones. And number three, there is no experience in Europe of dealing with large data or large-scale AI companies. So you kind of uh, get the point uh, uh, of uh, Lee. And I'm not sure I agree with everything that uh, he's saying there or elsewhere, but it's uh, definitely useful, I think, to read a critical take on uh, Europe's technological potential, especially since what we mostly read these days is just uh, different people uh, patting each other on the back and saying how great uh, our initiatives are uh, with artificial intelligence and how great we as a European ecosystem are doing. And this is also, by the way, something that uh, Lee mentioned uh on his Twitter earlier when talking about his book, uh, the one that uh, I mentioned before, and uh, I will read the tweet, uh, uh, the entire tweet that he sent. Uh, Several European publishers rejected the book on the basis that it was China-centric and uh, doesn't give enough credit or chance to Europe. Sadly, it is exactly this demand for credit rather than recognized reality that will keep Europe behind. That's what uh, Lee uh, tweeted about uh, about Europe as well. So if you haven't, check this one out. Check out this interview. It's really uh, interesting, entertaining, uh, maybe sad, maybe controversial, but definitely worth reading. And by the way, uh, the interview was published uh, on uh, a website called Sifted, and uh, it's a good time, I guess, to... Uh, to, to do a shout out for them. They are the new kids on the block and they're also writing about the European startup ecosystem. Uh, they are putting together really nice content. So check them out too if you haven't. Uh, they are really good. And uh, I will put the link to the interview with Kai Fuli in the show notes. Uh, this is really, really interesting. And before we leave, uh, anyone, any takes on this particular interview? Did you read it? What do you think about it? Do you agree? Natalie, go first. So we don't really have enough time to go into all the the things that that I I find um, really kind of troubling about this, but Sifted has actually responded to a number of critiques that they've got about this piece, and they're actually soliciting commentary. So if there's something that kind of jumps out at you, um, 
there will be a kind of a follow-up piece to this, kind of the, the European pushback. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what the ecosystem um, has to come up with to say, I, I really, I don't agree with, um, with this view. Um, and um, I've seen such promise and really, really positive things um, in Europe in the last few years that I think is it's it's important to, to recognize that. I don't think anyone in the European ecosystem is kind of congratulating themselves for their success. They're continuing to build. They're still working really hard. Um, and it's not a competition where anyone's giving out gold, silver, or bronze medals. So um, I don't know if that's necessarily the right way to be looking at it. Um, and I think many of us in Europe aren't looking at it as a competition, but rather as developing excellence. Um, but that, that's kind of a, a quick take from me. Right. John? Yeah, I mean, one has to agree, I think, uh, with the statement around data. Uh, I profoundly agree, which is the amount of data which is being generated in Southeast Asia is just profound. But equally, the lack of uh, controls around privacy and what they do with data in that part of the world has significant question marks around it where in certain parts of Europe we'll just never do the things that they'll do. So we get into conversations about what is morally uh, allowed and what's not. Um, on the other side of the equation, as someone who lives in Cambridge in the UK um, and has the good fortune of working with some of the smartest and brightest people coming out of that university, uh, I would probably gently push back on the statement of uh, the smarts and the ambition of some of the people that come out of that part of the world. Uh, I think uh, probably one word for that, which is called deep mind. Um, and Dimas uh, came out of Cambridge University and there's equally as many smart things coming out of places like Imperial. And Oxford, I can't speak for the broader European agenda, but that's not something I'm fearful of. Right. Alex, the Chinese champion. <laughs> no. Um, so I, I, Natalie and I had uh, a, a discussion around this. I think he's fundamentally right. Uh, I think his arrogance is what people don't like. And uh, the way he makes some of the statements and some of the points, I, I think, are not um, fully centered. I believe in the overall premise that uh, Europe has none of the success factors in the US or China for the simple reason that uh, Europe is a fragmented ecosystem with different countries and different cultures and different regulations uh, as comparison to the US where you have, in a way, some kind of a unified uh, front or China, which is just what the party says, right? I think it's funny that he talks about uh, European VC ecosystem compared to a Chinese one when I would say like 80% of the money coming from Chinese VC is coming from the government, right? So, uh, you know, it, he still has a point, but, yes, but. Um, and last but not least, um, I think the, his Twitter comment is spot on. Uh, I, I think the, the mayor reason why Europe won't be able to compete is because we still disregard China. And it's exactly the same stuff that's happening in the US. And that's the reason why China is growing. I mean, the, just just go to the comment that John said about people coming out of Imperial and people coming out of Cambridge University. He's right. I mean, it's true. But uh, the kind of research that's happening in China, the kind of... Uh, um, new designs around semiconductors that are coming out of the big Chinese companies is just 
overtaking anything we have right now in the world. So, you know, yes, I mean, you can argue that, yes, we have some smart people, and we do have, but the scale and the speed and the arrogance that the Chinese are displaying is unprecedented. And it's, that's, that's the simple reality that we have. Robin, do you agree or disagree? Yep, not much to add to what's already been said, but I think this is a very smart man. He's obviously thought about this a lot. Uh, but I think it also comes from a certain place of ignorance, uh, which is not to, to not as a, a way to insult him, but, but I think it's just a general lack of awareness of what's really going on in Europe uh, that I can't really blame him for, but that's partly our fault for not like advertising or, or at least telling, telling the stories uh, widely enough or, or loudly enough. Um, so... So if anything, I would love to to meet him and get Kai Fuli to come to Europe and to have a discussion at one of our events or, or to sort of do a follow, follow up on this interview um, and, you know, maybe maybe changes this uh, line of thought in the future uh, if we can. Um, but yeah, and thanks for the shout out to Sifted, by the way, because I really love the publication as well. Uh, it's a Financial Times publication for those who don't know. Um, so yeah. I'm very happy that the Financial Times in 2019 is finally waking up to the, the existence of the European startup ecosystem. And I welcome them to the the space absolutely right we are way over time already so i guess it's time to wrap it up so this is it for our today's uh, podcast i really hope you enjoyed it uh, please don't miss our new episodes uh, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app including spotify and soundcloud just look for tech.eu podcast and you will find us please leave us a review on your podcast app of choice if uh, it allows it uh, this will help uh, others uh, to find it and uh, also mean a lot for ourselves please Tell everyone you know about the podcast if it's relevant for them and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU and on Facebook. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions. The email addresses are still the same. It's Andri at tech.eu and Natalie at tech.eu. Now, Natalie, Robin, Alex and John, thank you so much for joining today. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I really hope to talk to you on this podcast sooner than the episode number 200. Enjoy the rest of your week and uh, talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Thank you, bye. See you guys. Bye.